go. I am all set to go. All right. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason. And I'm not Laura. <gasps> Gasp. And welcome to Come Back a Star, episode number 019, The Patriot, but not from 1928, the Mel Gibson 2000 movie. Typically on this podcast, we're reviewing every Best Picture winner and nominee from 1927 onwards. But today we're doing something a little bit different. While Laura's on vacation, I am hosting, as you heard, with my wife and Laura's sister. Cassandra, hello. We didn't want to skip any of the Oscar nominees while Laura was out, and we were joking about covering the 2000 The Patriot when we discovered the 1928 movie of the same name was no longer extant. So here we are. Yes, as a uh, longtime uh, non-cinephile but committed hater of Mel Gibson, I uh, couldn't resist the opportunity to fill in for my sister while she is uh, visiting our parents. And I would like to stress that she was extremely locked down and socially distanced for quite a while before she made this trip. So she's being very responsible. And while she's out, I am uh, happy to finally fulfill my longtime dream of displacing her and taking over for everything she does. So... (laughs) Oh, gosh. Uh, So, right. Uh, The Patriot 2000, not not 1928. (laughs) It's not great. I apologize in advance if it's like your favorite movie ever. I can see how it could be fun for for some people. But um, but you guys, you have to admit, it's not it's not the most dignified movie we've ever come across, (laughs) is it? Uh, Hardly. No. Ever since Jason and Laura began this project, uh, I had been joking about oh, when you guys finally make it to Braveheart, uh, I want to be a guest so I can, you know, simply monopolize your podcast and talk about how much I don't like Braveheart. Um, I guess we'll get into it more. But now having actually watched The Patriot, I think it makes me angrier than Braveheart does. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Braveheart is so gleefully over the top in the ways that I don't like (laughs) that it's it's easier to get a little bit of distance from it and just sort of dunk on it and laugh at it and you know mock the historical inaccuracies and you know all that stuff that insufferable nerds do and the patriot was sort of unevenly Mm. weird and bad it it had longish stretches that were actually kind of okay and were just good enough to get me just invested enough to be sort of upset and distraught when horrible things happened. So it was better, but in a way that makes it more distressing. Yes. And and I don't want to say that I think it was good because it wasn't good, but it had, like I said, it had stretches of close enough to good and good enough performances. I mean, I'll say that the, the acting was was not bad by any stretch. That it wasn't it wasn't bad in a fun way. It was bad in an this is almost actually pretty good, but still isn't. And I'm just still mad about it way. So <laughs> sounds I would agree with that. That's kind of my my overall feeling about it. It had moments where you were kind of hoping like, well, maybe this is kind of pulling through a point or two. But uh, kind of the overall product was a little bit of a mess because every time they had something good going, they kind of undermined it with something completely goofy. Yeah. And, you know, I'll say too to contextualize it, I was convinced that this movie came out when you and I were in college, which would have put it in 
the, you know, the first four years after 9-11. Right. Which makes so much sense to me that I never even questioned it. I thought it came out about 2004-ish. Because it seems like exactly something, you know, at least in terms of premise, that would have fit so perfectly into the types of movies that were coming out in the aftermath of 9-11. I was shocked when we read that it was 2000. Right. Um, Very different very different frame to look at it through, I think. Uh, yeah, I was a little bit surprised by that, too. And I rem- I remember watching it uh, shortly after it came out, actually. And I remember thinking, wait a minute. So did this come before or after? Anyways, it came before 9-11 is the point. And it is fairly pro-american i would say but it does have like some twinges of um war is hell sort of sentiment yeah it's more complicated than i expected and god help me i'm even going to say i think parts of it are a little bit more nuanced than i would have guessed so it's definitely not the pure pulse pounding boot in your ass post 9-11 like patriotic adrenaline delivery system that i assumed it was Mm. um so there are there are points in it that are that are genuinely very interesting. Um, but ultimately, it does kind of come down to. A big old, well, I mean, I guess, spoiler alert, big old scene of Mel Gibson galloping across a battlefield, waving the American flag, which just is a lot. But um, <laughs> it's a bit much. But there's there's interesting stuff along the way. Yeah. And speaking of all that interesting stuff, shall we get into summarizing the uh, the movie? Uh, absolutely. And here's where you guys are going to really miss my sister, <laughs> since I think she usually writes these. And uh, as you noted, I think we mostly uh, plagiarize this from Wikipedia. So I did take a lot of notes about things I hated, though. I have. Oh, good. I have two and a half pages of handwritten notes. Um, I guess it's not just stuff I hated. I wrote down stuff I thought was good, too. So I'll, we'll see if I actually refer to any of that or not. But. Yeah, see, Laura never does that. <laughs> well, it's because she has a function and, of memory. And, and neither do I. Um <laughs> So let's see. Let's uh, let's set the scene. And I guess if this is your very first episode listening in, uh, what we do here is that we kind of summarize uh, the movie. This one's going to be kind of long, partly because there is a lot that we want to talk about in it. And also, since we're using the summary from (laughs) Wikipedia, (laughs) more or less, I punched it up a little bit, but it's a little bit longer than our usual affair. So. I, I understand if you're just anxiously pumping your fists, awaiting us to get to uh, to the grading. I I understand. And I'm, I'm sorry. And, and, and I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not Laura. Uh, yeah, we apologize. <laughs> uh, the ratings uh, come after our summary, and we're going to grade this on acting, writing, cinematography overall. And then we're going to give it some chance for bonus points on costumes and set boldness legacy longevity and technical Hmm. and then we have to decide whether we will nominate it for the notsker but since this is not a 1928 movie which that year we've already passed anyways um frankly that year was so bad that i could see this movie making it to the you know i'll have to take your word for it since i have um 
definitely not watched any of the movies you and Laura have been working your way through, so I can't compare it to any of the 1928 crop. But I guess we can we can wing it when we get to that point. Yeah, you've heard the episodes, though. I have heard the episodes. I've heard the episodes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And I guess we'll see if this belongs alongside uh, our 2000. Oh, no. (laughs) uh, Crop when we get when we get there. That's going to be interesting because that's probably going to be about 10 years from now. (laughs) You just need to pick up the pace and start doing two episodes a week. okay? (laughs) oh, man, I I wish we had time for that. Uh, Let's see. So let's set the stage. It's right before the American Revolutionary War, 1776. You you there? I'm, I'm there. And I would like to say the first thing I wrote down is something I liked was that the opening credits are in kind of a cool 18th century looking font. So, you know, we start on that aesthetically pleasing note. Yeah. Good job, guys. You got the font right, at least. <laughs> OK, so Captain Benjamin Martin, a veteran of the French and Indian War and a widower, is called Charleston, South Carolina, to vote in the General Assembly on supporting the Continental Army. Fearing war against Britain. Benjamin abstains from the vote, but the vote still passes, and, against his father's wishes, Benjamin's eldest son, Gabriel, joins the Continental Army right then and there. There's a whole sign-in book waiting for for the young men to sign up as soon as this levy is passed. Yes, and Gabriel is played by uh, Y2K heartthrob Heath Ledger, very charmingly. Mm. Yeah, he he did a good job. Yeah, yeah, he was, uh, he was, I think, a highlight of the film. He has such a just kind of a smarmy, nice kid uh, role to play, but he he plays it very well. Like he, the, his dialogue is very, I am a good lad and I believe in liberty and slavery is bad and I love my girlfriend and I'm charming, but it's Heath Ledger. So you don't really care what the words are because he's just being like really delightful about it. Yeah, charming. He's yeah. just very, very charming. And he does feel like a very sincere young person, uh, they they hammer his idealism pretty hard, which is fair. I think the idea of of showing a basically a teenager signing up for war because he's idealistic is extremely plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, and they uh, <laughs> they uh, they show him repeatedly over the course of the film uh, when they're you know hiding out and there's their their swamp camp and whatnot, uh, very carefully uh, sewing and repairing an American flag. It's a little little heavy handed with the how how carefully he's preserving these ideals of liberty and so forth. But again, it's Heath Ledger, so it's entirely forgivable. And I think he he, re- <laughs> he retains a degree of dignity that I think most young actors probably would not. So he he definitely gets some some accolades from me for that. But yes, yeah, Gabriel has joined the army. Well, all right. So some time passes and Charleston falls to the British. And a wounded Gabriel returns from battle carrying some dispatches and he is wounded. The Martins care for British and American soldiers wounded from a nearby battle before a British dragoon colonel shows up named Colonel William Tavington. The most supercilious personality i have ever seen on stage and i mean i or excuse me on on screen and i know you guys have been watching a bunch of 20s and 30s era films that probably have like comparably cartoonish villains but boy this guy this guy snidely whiplashes the hell out of this role and i i do find it completely delightful (laughs) he doesn't have a mustache unfortunately to to twirl but there there is a little bit of of that he is just Awful with no redeeming characteristics, 
And he we're clearly meant to hate him and everything that he stands for. He is horrifying. Um, I don't want to digress too much here, but one of the few things I remember from when the film was released was some some news about British people being genuinely kind of pissed off about it. And I thought at the time, like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, they're obviously going to be the bad guys in the movie and it's from an American perspective. I'm. I'm sure it's probably a little over the top, but oh my God, I am mm. offended on behalf of the British. And, you know, we we did a, a minor amount of research about this guy, and I, I would like to stress minor. And it sounds like, you know, he wasn't a great chill dude, and I don't want to, like, make him sound like he was secretly the hero or anything because, you know, that would be foolish. He He was a war guy and did bad things, but they just have him gleefully doing atrocity after atrocity. And I'm sure we'll get into this more too, but right. just completely ahistorical. Um, oh, it, look, it'll come up throughout the, uh, the summary, but the thing I, I think the thing I hated most was very early on. He comes upon the black laborers who pick corn and tobacco on the Martin farm. And he says very sneeringly that any, any enslaved person who agrees to come fight for King George will be rewarded with his freedom. And I mean, I got to give this guy some, some uh, accolades for being able to deliver this line with a straight face because it is so cartoonishly evil, which is weird because it's not a very evil thing to do. <laughs> like, right. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, there's there's not a lot of good going on here. And historically, there wasn't like a real moral high ground between the British and the Americans when it comes to enslaving other human beings. But I think the fact that they they contrast his sneering, condescending assumption that these these black laborers would want to come with him and fight for King George, they contrast this to the this one this one guy and i don't think this character even had a name if he did i missed it saying oh but we're not slaves we're we're paid to work here and like okay so apparently benjamin martin uh has freed his slaves and i guess they have like a great dental plan and four weeks <laughs> paid vacation and 401k matching it is the least plausible and most insulting thing and from what we've read the um benjamin martin was a composite of several uh, was inspired by several uh, actual historic figures who fought in the revolution, different militia leaders and, and whatnot. And the, the guy he's most closely based on absolutely did not free his slaves. He did. He did lots of atrocities. Uh, he he hunted Cherokee for sport and he did horrifying things to the people enslaved on his plantation. So the fact that the movie would acknowledge the existence of slavery, but somehow have this wealthy South Carolina landowner benevolently employing black laborers who are then reluctant to go off and fight. It's just, it's complicated and gross. And I could probably yell about this at great length, but it's just, they're doing this, I think, to establish what's his name, Colonel something, something, um, William Tavington. Tavington. They're doing this to establish Tavington's sneering villainy, and it's just does not work very well. But please continue with the summary. Yeah, it it kind of uh, clumsily stumbles and falls there. Yeah. Uh, and that's not the last time we're going to hear about it stumbling and falling around the issue of oh slavery. God. There's there's probably a reason why there haven't been that too 
too many movies about the American Revolution, probably the very uncomfortable subject of slavery still being there before and after is a driving force behind that. But uh, yeah, this movie tries anyways and tries to show us slavery and then kind of throw a tarp over it. Yeah, it's I'm not saying it would be better if they had just ignored it, but it's not. It's not it's not good. (laughs) So anyway, uh, Tavington basically captures these um, non-slaves and hauls them away. But then something very dramatic happens. Right. So one of the the captives, of course, is going to be Gabriel, who is going to be hung as a spy. And uh, so all these people are getting led away. Um, African-American freedmen. The uh, women who work on Benjamin's land, they're all getting led away and and Gabriel, his son, is getting all tied up and ready to be hauled off to be hung somewhere else, I guess. And his second son, Thomas, runs up and tries to stop them. And this is and I say second oldest son and this kid still looks i think they even established that he's 15 or something he's like supposed that. to be yeah i think like 14 or 15 years old and he runs up and he tries to push the soldiers tying up his brother and the dastardly colonel william tavington uh shoots him in the back <laughs> and yeah that's uh that really hammers home how evil tavington is and after that, uh, Tavington also just orders that their house be burnt down and all the American wounded be shot. And that is kind of the the fridging moment that <laughs> that turns Benjamin, who uh, up until this point has been fairly pacifist. And we know that he has a uh, a military background, but now he's. His son has died in his arms and he is angry. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a point where we can say that the one thing that maybe was somewhat close to the historic Tavington's crimes was it does sound like he one of his things was killing the captured and wounded, maybe, which which, again, is bad. And I don't want to minimize it uh, for the sake of dunking on the stupid movie. Uh, But it's also kind of the least of the bad things that he will do. Throughout the movie. Yes. Uh, so, he, you know, starts by by shooting this teenager in the back and then has his men murder all of these wounded soldiers, burn down the Martin home and then smugly prances away on his horsey. And uh, then things get very real. Very real. And I also want to just before we move on, perhaps like the worst part about all of this is that. Uh, since he is a cavalry officer, Tavington also gets to ride around on a cool horse, which <laughs> which impacted me personally. Your first comment uh, as the movie began was, I mean, a, a horse crossed the screen. He's like, oh, I like that horse. That horse is the star of the film. So, I mean, Jason has a very strong pro horse bias. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's unfair that the villain gets to have a horse. Mm. <laughs> I guess the good guys get horses I also later on in the movie. But anyways, uh Mel Gibson playing Benjamin. This is gets where it angry. gets really Mel Gibson y. Yes, it's very Mel Gibson, very 
Braveheart after his wife has been killed. Uh, you you just know what's going to happen. Basically, he gets his younger sons because um, he has like seven kids or something. So Gabriel is in the army. Thomas is dead now and he has like two younger kids, one of whom is probably named Nathan. They look like they're what, like 10 or 12 at most. Yeah, they're little they're little kids They're I would say probably 10 or 12 at the oldest. And he arms them and he goes and gets all of his uh, goodies from the French and Indian War. And they head out to the woods. And Jason, what do they do there? What incredibly yeah, so plausible thing do they do there? Benjamin and his uh, child army um, kind of set up an ambush for the British who are carrying um, uh, Gabriel. And so he gives two muskets to his each of his young boys and uh, takes several muskets of his own. And kind of hides them behind trees. And so he's laying down this ambush and he very skillfully yet brutally murders uh, 20 soldiers with a tomahawk getting involved in one of those points and frees Gabriel. Yeah, it's it's really something. And I mean, and it's a very excitingly shot scene. I mean, it feels like something out of a like a if a Marvel movie was a period piece. Um, <laughs> so it's it's compelling and, you know, the little the little kid actors, I think, do a, a pretty solid job of conveying the actual horror of arming your tiny children and making them kill other human beings. They don't linger on it. But you I mean, you really see this absolute trauma happening to these little kids. And it's not so much that you feel like Benjamin thinks it's a good idea to train his children to kill it's that he seems to have been sort of overtaken by his own grief and rage and does not account for it in the moment. Um, right. But yeah, but then it's like he has his kids shoot some guys, he shoots some guys, and then he finishes them off with a tomahawk and hand to hand fighting, which, again, very impressively filmed. It was an exciting scene and he does manage to free Gabriel and then they all disappear. Um, one dude lives one of the british soldiers uh lives to tell the tale yes only only just <laughs> uh a british survivor as we said uh, tells tavington of the attack and this is where benjamin earns his nickname amongst the british and the local populace ghosts because he just came in and, and took out 20 redcoats and Gabriel decides to rejoin the Continental Army and Benjamin soon follows, leaving the younger children in the care mm. of Benjamin's sister-in-law and love interest. <laughs> it's very creepy. Benjamin's sister-in-law and love interest, Charlotte. It's it's very... Uh, icky? Icky. Yeah, it... Uh... <sighs> It's it's rough. So, you know, Benjamin is widowed, of course. Um, and there's this like throbbing, unspoken sexual tension between him and his children's aunt, uh, who is played by, I believe, Jolie Richardson. And she's luminously beautiful and delightful to watch. Uh, she doesn't get a lot of lines. She doesn't no. have a lot to do. Her The few lines she does have truly sound like they were cribbed directly from like a U.S. history textbook, like eighth grade textbook. Um, but she's very beautiful. She has some cool, big old dresses and anachronistic hairstyles that I didn't care for. 
And she's got like great facial expressions. Mm -hmm. If you watch her in the scenes she's in, she's she's she looks like an intelligent person thinking and processing and scheming. But she doesn't really get to do much with that. No, except get like vigorously. um, uh, I was going to say I humped, but that's probably inappropriate. Uh, Mac attacked. Mac attacked by her uh, her dead sister's husband. And it's a. it's uncomfortable. I it, anyway, I mean, it doesn't I don't even know how much we should say about it because it doesn't really contribute to the plot in any meaningful way. It's just like, I guess he had to have a love interest. It just so could have easily made it one of his wife's friends. Yeah. Or like literally anyone else. Um, oh, and the thing that I thought was really great is eventually they uh, I guess uh, sexy Aunt Charlotte has a place in Charlestown. And um, a plantation out in the more rural areas. Weirdly, we don't really see anybody working her home or plantation. I mean, there's the domestic servants that belong to the Martin family, um, Abigail and a couple other guys whose names I don't remember, who remember emphatically are not enslaved. But they don't really address whether sexy Aunt Charlotte owns humans. We don't see them. We don't they don't talk about them. I mean, if they did, it was brief enough that I missed it. And so it's kind of interesting. She just sort of seems to exist in this ethereal state of obvious wealth and beauty and good health and and plenty. She's Gladriel. Yeah, she's very Gladriel, but like Gladriel has magic. This woman's <laughs> uh, beautiful life that she has, it's obviously interrupted by the war and she'll be going through privations and terrors and everything too, but they just kind of don't talk about what supports this woman's lifestyle in any meaningful way. Because then again, you'd have to acknowledge that the very pretty, very nice lady might own people and they don't really want to get into that. So it's kind of a big gaping hole whenever uh, Aunt Charlotte's around, at least in the beginning of the film when she still has her property and stuff. But she, she has one of the three rings. It's fine. (laughs) Um, So, Let's see. They he leaves the kids with Charlotte and on uh, Benjamin and Gabriel's way to the Continental Army camp, they witness a Southern Continental Army under the Horatio Gates engaging the British Army. Benjamin being the wise veteran, uh, obviously, who knows everything about war, um, recognizes the foolishness of Gates's uh, tactics and having served in the British army, he says like, Oh yeah, like he's doing everything wrong because you can't fight the British in just an open battle and expect to win. And sure enough, the continentals are decisively routed, but they see this stuff from a distance, I believe. Yeah. And they, they really kind of go hard on the horrors of war stuff and the combat scenes. When you're seeing people's heads blown off by, by cannonballs, you're seeing people shot and hacked up and it's, it's it's distressing. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, Benjamin gets to to hook up with, I guess, I guess Colonel Harry Burwell was his commanding officer during the French and Indian War. And they least, know they, they have some kind of history. Uh, yeah, they they are clearly kind of veteran buds. Uh, and Burwell makes him a colonel uh, in charge of the local colonial militia due to Uh, Benjamin's combat experience, and he also places his son Gabriel under Benjamin's command to um, to Gabriel's uh, discontent initially. (laughs) 
Benjamin begins to put together a ragtag militia, including men from a nearby town that need to be roused to action by a dramatic speech delivered by Gabriel's love interest, Anne. Oh, this was my least favorite part, except for some of the other parts. I mean, this doesn't (laughs) this doesn't offend me the way that like the goofy handling of slavery does or a couple other things. But yeah, this this I, I didn't catch the actress's name. It's like a really, you know, delightful, beautiful young actress uh, gives this rousing speech that in the church about, you know, all you men, aren't, aren't you always talking about freedom and liberty? And don't you want to do this? And don't you want to do that? And, you know, even um, even the the reverend, Reverend Constable Odo uh, <laughs> ends up enlisting because Anne's speech is so stirring. And I mean, I think the word I used to describe it in my notes was irpy. It's just it's just a lot. And We'll get to this in a few paragraphs, I think. Um, this is one moment. Well, I guess the way it ties into something that happens a little bit later is one moment where I kind of can't tell if the movie is actually making a point mm-hmm. and kind of um, complicating the idea of rousing speeches and getting the men folk to sign up to fight for freedom and blah, blah, blah. Or if they're or if it if they're just not thinking it through, if that makes sense. I hope that will make sense in a couple right. paragraphs when we get to, um, well, some of the atrocities. But Right. So he has this, this ragtag band of basically villagers and some... He, he also goes to like a bar and it's very, it's very going to Moss Eisley sort of situation <laughs> where he asks for, you know, the worst people, the worst to, to sign up. <laughs> well, some of the worst of the worst. I guess some of them. I, are just- I did kind of. I kind of liked this. I have to admit that I'm looking for. I can't find where I put this in my notes, but I kind of liked. Oh, the Comic Relief Tavern. Um, I liked that, and they had some real, genuinely unsavory types show up. Like it wasn't just like lovable backwoodsy weirdos. Like there was a dude who was like. Am I going to get a bounty for all the scalps I bring in? And, and Benjamin's like, no, not not this time. But you can keep or sell any any red coat guns you get. And he's like, oh, OK, so, you know, these are these are some of these are dudes who are like, again, looking forward to hunting other human beings for fun and profit. Um, so it's a it's a real interesting mishmash of, of different types. And uh, what's kind of interesting, too, is, you know, Benjamin Martin and all of the other South Carolinians we've seen so far have been fairly wealthy, refined types. These guys are like obviously poor. A lot of them probably live in shacks in the woods, etc. They have names like Squinty Joe. Yeah, yeah, they have names like Squinty Joe or um, and whatnot. But they're the only ones who have Southern accents. That's right. That was the other thing that I noticed, like towards the beginning, is that like they're supposedly in South Carolina and they've given none of these people Southern accents. Yeah, which is, again, it's kind of an interesting in a in kind of a gone with the wind Rhett Butler way. Like (laughs) any I mean, anyway, Um, but speaking of genuinely unsavory types, there's one guy who, you know, it's he's on stage on, on screen very briefly. But he makes this very sympathetic case for, you know, how awful the British have been and how how much he wants to help and everything. But he's he, I guess he's he's infirm. He's sick in some way. And so he says, oh, but you can have my Negro, which is a shocking and awful moment. You know, you use this guy who who comes across as kind of a sympathetic backwoodsy, but cool guy. And then he just hands over another human being to fight in his place. And it's genuinely like a real stomach dropping in an elevator kind of moment. 
which I kind of think I wish the movie had kind of leaned in harder on stuff like that. And those kind of contradictions of this guy who, for you know, when you meet him, he seems like this very sincere, gritty, potential freedom fighter who owns a human being. <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. you know, and, the, and that's a really striking moment. And then and again, I, I didn't capture the name of of this enslaved person who ends up getting getting roped into the militia. Um, but he's the closest thing to like a real character that any of the black characters get to be. Right. And, uh, you know, he ends up staying enlisted because George Washington declares that a any any enslaved person who serves the Continental Army for, I think, 12 months or something like that will be freed. And, you know, he basically exists so that this other minor character who's like super racist can have like a little awakening and and be less racist. And I anyway, I, I kept track of how many lines the black actors got to speak and I might have missed a couple. So this could be undercounted slightly, but I have 18, 18 lines of dialogue in a three hour movie spoken by black characters. And again, I might have missed a couple. Let's maybe call it 20. <laughs> and one right. of those lines is huzzah at one point. So I mean, we're not talking about like a great depth of uh, character development through dialogue. But no. But yeah, I, I mostly really liked the comic relief tavern scene because, I mean, for one thing, it does kind of introduce you to a greater, I think, diversity of ideology, like the like Benjamin and his other buddies so far have been very sort of lofty ideals types. And here you're getting to the guys who maybe have some lofty ideals, maybe have some very pragmatic concerns and maybe just want to go scalp British soldiers for money. So it's a little bit grittier, a little bit realer. There is some actual humor in the scene. I think it was probably a high point. I don't think the movie gets much better than this scene. Yeah, I would agree. This is a, so anyway, this is the the group that Benjamin is able to put together. And we then get to see scenes of his militia holding up Cornwallis's army uh, through guerrilla warfare, which is in direct contrast to him talking about uh, Gates uh, making a mistake by engaging the British in an open mm-hmm. field, which is I don't know if it's 100 percent true. It, I'm guessing it probably is. But yeah. every every kid in, in the U.S., when we learn about the American Revolution, I remember distinctly like one thing that always comes up is like, yeah, we did really well because we were sneaky. Yeah, because we used guerrilla warfare and and I got a hand at the movie here, too. Um, it's a it's a kind of a brief montage, I guess. But it's I think, again, one of the more effective sort of warfare scenes. And I've got to admit, it's effective. I do find myself getting kind of jazzed up by it because, you know, previously when you see um, the Continental Army under under gates engaging with the British Army and getting slaughtered and it's kind of that classic, you know, a bunch of rows of guys marching at each other in an open field and then just shooting at each other. And it's just this ghastly, monstrous machine of war, really depressing. And then, you know, a little while later, you get the uh, the montage of Martin and company uh, doing cool guerrilla warfare things. It's like really viscerally satisfying. And I don't really like that I liked it. But I've again, I've got to give them some credit for like selling it that I bought yeah. into it for that long because I mean, I, I don't like war. I don't, I don't like any part of it, but there was something very narratively engaging and exciting about, about watching this ragtag bag of continental ragtag bag, ragtag band of continentals uh, 
popping up out of tall grass yeah. or swamps and ambushing, you know, these stuffed shirt snobby Brits. And you got to love an underdog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, I like that, too. And uh, I have to admit, I have a soft spot for any story like that. Ragtag band of idiots. <laughs> Uh, zipping around and, and being sneaky, oh. winning by cheating. <laughs> um, speaking of 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 the the band of, of idiots and whatnot, uh, you should talk a little bit about French major Jean Villeneuve. He's oh. kind of an interesting character who I do wish that the movie had maybe taken some some time spent elsewhere and spent it on this guy because I thought he was actually really interesting. Yeah, this uh, French major here, he is. He doesn't get enough lines. I feel like. He's just kind of there to be the French guy there, but he helps train this militia and helps them to be a little bit less ragtag. The the constant um, refrain from this French major, of course, is that the French will be arriving. And that's kind of, I think, one of the main reasons he's there is to kind of re- remind us that what you refer to as the French ex machina will <laughs> will be arriving at and some this point. this movie made me wait until like the last five minutes to finally see the French arrive. And I'm mad about it. <laughs> I wanted to see Jean and his pals doing interesting French things. Um, I think part of why I got kind and, of excited and winning the war, and winning for, the us. war for us. Historical side note. <laughs> um, also, I, again, I'm, I'm terrible at paying attention to actors names. If my sister was here, she'd probably know the guy's whole biography. But um, the actor's delightful. Uh, I wish he'd had more screen time. He's 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 kind of funny and dry, but also very scary uh, because he wants to do a few war crimes here and there. And uh, Benjamin's kind of on board with it. Like they actually kill some captured surrendering British soldiers uh, until Gabriel says, oh, my God, what are you doing? Stop. This is this is not what we are. This is not why we're here. Benjamin snaps out of it. But Jean and some of the others are like, no, no, it's cool. We can we can kill these guys, even though they're surrendering. And and uh, that's when Jean shares his tragic backstory, yes. because he also has a tragic backstory, of course. And Which, I mean, fair enough. I'm sure everybody involved had a tragic backstory. I think pretty much everyone alive back then were just living yeah. a tragic backstory. Yeah, but the British <laughs> had killed his wife and daughters. I think they were on a ship that was sunk by the British or something like that. And he watched from another ship, something, something. Mm. Um, but yeah, because it's, it's interesting because he's in many ways the sort of affable and charming character, but he's also extremely down to kill wounded and surrendering soldiers, which is chilling and is complicated and interesting as a they, for they a even character. have a good laugh about it at one point. Yeah, where... yeah that is actually I, I loved this and I don't really know how I feel about it, but I, I laughed pretty hard is sometime later when um, the relationship between Jean and Benjamin has thawed somewhat and they're kind of becoming comrades in arms. I can't even remember what the context was, but it was something like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll do this. We'll do that. And and maybe shoot a few wounded ones when you're not looking. <laughs> and they like share a little laugh about, you know, the atrocities and war crimes that he wants to commit. And it's it's really something. At one point, while Benjamin is resting and making musket balls by melting his dead son's army miniatures. Gabriel asks why people mention Benjamin's participation at an incident at Fort Wilderness so often. And it kind of it it comes comes, up a lot, comes up a lot. And Benjamin reluctantly finally tells his son what happened at this incident that we've been hearing about throughout the movie. Benjamin had been fighting in the British Army against the French in the previous war. And when he and several other soldiers discovered a French atrocity, uh, they came across some sort of horrible war crime scene of a lot of civilians killed and and whatnot. 
And these enraged men in the British military uh, got caught up with the uh, with the French at Fort Wilderness and slowly methodically butchered all but two of these uh, French French and Cherokee fighters. That's right. French and Cherokee uh, military people. The survivors, the two of them that were left, were forced to admit what happened to their Cherokee allies and bring their comrades' heads as proof. Benjamin reveals that he's been haunted with guilt by this ever since. Yeah, which is interesting. And I I have some very, like, incomplete but kind of, I don't know. I have some thoughts about this movie and the whole idea of, like, war-related trauma and PTSD. I mean, Y2K, we're talking about the baby boomers turning 50 and, you know, basically the Vietnam generation kind mm-hmm. of coming into its own and starting to run the country and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, dealing with kind of these generational guilt over either participating in the war or not participating in the war. You can feel bad either way. Um, and the way that the movie handles Benjamin's like obvious trauma from what he experienced during the French and Indian War and how it's it's shaped him into this this man who's capable of going into like D&D barbarian berserker mode and hacking up 20 dudes with a hatchet but he does feel really bad about it and the movie kind of seems to want to have it both ways mm-hmm. wants him to be this super soldier powered by righteous rage and a desire for liberty but he's also haunted by these war crimes he did and these atrocities he committed um and it just it doesn't quite land on how we're supposed to feel about him, at least at this point in the movie. Um, it's interesting to me, too, that when he's telling his son the story of what happened at Fort Wilderness. Obviously, we're not supposed to think it's cool and good that he and his friends butchered a bunch of French and Cherokee. That's it's not good. and He's haunted by it, obviously. But they have to make sure we know that Benjamin and his friends only did this because the French and Cherokee had slaughtered a bunch of settlers really horribly. And I think it's implied that they raped the women and did all of this awful, awful stuff. What with it being a war and everything. And so they, they, they want to talk about how he's basically deranged by grief and haunted by guilt. I mean, they always use the term haunted, but they also kind of want to justify his actions. So it's like, he can feel really bad about it. But it's also kind of understandable because, you know, those Cherokee and those French did a worse thing first. And so it feels a little bit cheap, like they're kind of trying to have it both ways. So, yeah, they're definitely having two minds about this throughout the movie. What I did like and I thought this is one of the moments where things are a little not really moment. It comes up a couple times is up until this point, periodically, Benjamin has been um, treated as sort of a hero. People, you know, Gabriel even says, Father, everywhere we go, men buy you drinks and slap you on the back and congratulate you for Fort Wilderness and they call you a hero. But what really happened? And it is interesting that all of the people who think whatever happened at Fort Wilderness was like super cool and exciting were not the people who were there. So Mm. there is a real element of what we would today call a war crime was done. And I guess I, I presumably it helped win the war or whatever. A war crime was committed. And all the people who weren't there think it was really cool and think that the guy who did it is like a hero. And meanwhile, the guy who did it does not think it was great and does not want to relive it. And so I do kind of appreciate that. 
Mm-hmm. I think parts of the ending sort of undermine it, but at least that complication is there. Yeah, that kind of feeds into my theory that maybe this movie was worked on by more than one person. It does have sort of a collage feel to it. Like there are serious and nuanced and complicated parts. And then there are, you know, Mel Gibson galloping across a battlefield, waving an American flag around. And yeah, it 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 jumps all over the place. And uh Anyway, so we we have that scene where he finally admits to his son Gabriel all the all the difficulties and and probable reasons why he was a pacifist person in the start of the movie. And but then we, you know, we cut away from from all that sad stuff and we go back to Benjamin's militia wreaking havoc on uh, British supply lines. And they even at one point capture some of Cornwallis's personal effects and his two great Danes. Jupiter and Mars, and they're very good boys. Oh, they are. Lord Cornwallis blames Tavington for creating this reaction with his brutal tactics. We have uh, at least a couple of scenes where Tavington is getting dressed down for just being a butcher and overall bad guy. And uh, Cornwallis also kind of goes into his whole like discussion of how your gentleman here and an army officer is meant to be, you know, exhibit gentlemanly uh, activities and Tavington is not being a gentleman. And that's also brought up again as uh, Benjamin is basically bargaining for the freedom of some of his men who have been captured. And one of the grievances that Cornwallis brings up is that he keeps shooting all the officers first. And Cornwallis's objection to this is that if you just have two mobs of officerless uh, people running at each other, all sorts of mayhem and and carnage will ensue. And of course, we're thinking in the back of our minds, hey, there's that colonel who is not. It's not the ordinary people who are the problem. (laughs) Yeah. This is one of the things that uh, made me think about how how interesting it was that this movie was was pre 9-11 was that Cornwallis basically calls out Tavington as saying, look, you're making terrorists. You're you are going around. You are killing civilians. You're terrorizing people. You're doing these completely unnecessary. Horrifying acts, again, things that we would today call war crimes. And by doing that, you're going to incite people like the ghost to hate us and work against us and to undermine sort of the civilized rules of war, et cetera, et cetera. And I really wonder if they would have had a line like that if it had been a post 9-11 movie where you acknowledge that doing terrible things with the military makes terrorism more likely. Like the, the worse you are to a civilian population, the likelier you are to breed another generation of terrorists who hate you. And I, I don't know. I don't know if that would have been in, in this movie if it had come out just a couple years later, because it's it's such a it's such a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good point. And again, sometimes the movie kind of brings up these good points and then kind of just kind of releases them into the ether and they don't really hook on to anything. Yeah. Uh, and I think at this point I was thinking, OK, so Cornwallis is kind of supposed to be one of one of the good British people who. Even if he is a stuffed shirt, he uh, he he at least has some sort of honor and sense of of dignity about him. 
But uh, his tune changes about Tavington's tactics when Benjamin cleverly tricks him out of freeing his captured militiamen by uh, essentially setting up a little straw group of 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 mannequins, cap- basically of mannequins, yeah. Yeah. and posing them as captured uh, British soldiers several miles away for him to look at, and says like, "Hey, you release my people, and all these officers that I've captured will will go free." And after that, and after his dogs, Mars and Jupiter, follow, I think that's really what broke the. Yeah, and it's so it's so dumb. It's like so he brings back. I mean, Cornwallis has mentioned a couple times how awful it is that the that the militia stole his dogs. And so when Benjamin comes back to bargain to get his militia guys released, he has the dogs with him and Cornwallis is so happy to see his dogs and then when Benjamin leaves, the dogs follow him and won't come back when Cornwallis is calling for them. And it's just it's just super dumb, <laughs> just unforgivably dumb. Yeah, it's it's definitely cheesy. And you kind of get that moments like, haha, the crafty American has outwitted the the buffoonish British general here. And yeah, after that, though, after taking his dogs again, Cornwallis turns to Tavington and is willing to charge Tavington with stopping Benjamin by yeah, any means necessary. Yeah, he basically just, just com- like does a complete 180 and says, you know what, go do some war crimes to get me that guy. And it's, okay, fine, whatever. So now Tavington has license to do whatever horrifying thing he wants to do. And, and he does. Yes, with the aid of Loyalist Captain Wilkins, Tavington learns the identities of some of the militia members and attacks their families and burns their homes. Benjamin's family, with uh, Charlotte, flees uh, Charlotte's plantation as it is being burned, and they run off to live in a Gullah settlement with uh, former black slaves. Yeah, it's interesting. I I was like, oh, the Gullah. Okay, maybe this is going to get interesting. And then the whole village is not but a beautiful backdrop for the white people to do things. I mean, there are, again, I counted, like I said, no more than about 20 lines of dialogue for black actors throughout this film. So even though um, I think it's it's Abigail, who was a servant in Martin's household, is now living with the Gullah and she like welcomes Charlotte and the kids and everybody I'm like, yeah, you can stay here and it's great. And yeah, it's 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 just a backdrop for the white people to do things. And it doesn't it doesn't get into any context about the Gullah. Mm-hmm. There are no 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 further character development. Um, nothing horrible happens to them, at least, which I, I was bracing for. I, I was just waiting for Tavington to come in and burn down their settlement or something, which does not happen, at least. But I mean, they're just. I mean, they may as well be staying at a Motel 6, honestly, for for all the specificity of having this like beautiful seaside Gullah settlement. There's so much interesting history there that is just not engaged with it at all. Yeah, they don't really bring up anything about it. Nope. Um, not, not, not at all. <laughs> um, so there at the Gullah settlement, uh, Gabriel marries his betrothed Anne, who we talked about earlier, the the young lady with the rousing speech that that wins over the hearts and minds of all the men in the village. And Tavington Tavington rides into the town where Anne lives after they get married and everything and uh, herds all of the remaining villagers. Well, this is kind of this is the chronology here, I think, is interesting. So Tavington has gone on a spree through the countryside targeting the homes of the militiamen. 
one guy in the militia, they they come across the the burning rema- ruins of his home and they see his little boy and his wife dead in the ashes. And then he shoots himself. And Benjamin realizes, okay, this the men are being targeted. My militia is being targeted. And he gives everybody a week's furlough and says, anyone who doesn't come back is not going to be thought of as a coward. Basically saying, at this point, if you need to go and just take care of your family, we're not going to hold that against you. Um, so they take a week off, basically. And it, this is this is the time when um, Gabriel brings Anne and her family to the Gullah settlement and they have this lovely wedding and everybody dances and Mel Gibson and Jolie Richardson have a really uncomfortable scene where they, I think, sort of acknowledge their feelings for each other. And there's a gross there was a gross kiss, right? I think I yeah. looked away. It was gross. And anyway, so everyone's married and whatever. And then there's a very, very emotional scene where, okay, the men have to get back to war. So Anne and her family load up into a cart, go back to town. And just as they arrive in town, Tavington and his men show up. And, right. her, and then, then they herd everyone into the church. And they demand to know where this militia is, where are all these people? And uh, yeah, so Tavington assembles all of them. He kind of just herds everyone into the church and he promises them freedom in exchange for the whereabouts of these rebels. And after the location is given up by some, some pitiful coward of a man, some jerk. And yeah. And of course, one of the only fat characters in the whole movie, he's this young guy wearing a, wearing a wig. Um, you know, all of the militiamen, of course, are these like rough and tumble real men with their natural hair and stuff. But this sort of prancy town guy who's not part of the militia and is well dressed and wearing a wig like the British and is kind of chubby, you know, like like all bad people and traitors. He's, <laughs> he is weak and soft. And I obviously have a little bit of an issue with that. But right. But anyway, he he gives up the location of the militiamen, tells them where in the swamp uh, they can be found. and. And he assumes that he and all of his neighbors will be safe and fine. But no. Instead, uh, Tavington barricades the doors and burns the church, killing everyone inside. Yeah, it's awful. It's awful to watch. Um, You know, I don't expect a war movie to be free of horrors. But I was not expecting this because this didn't happen in the Revolutionary War. Churches were burned. I mean, there were some there were some Presbyterian and other churches burned in the Carolinas and elsewhere uh, by both sides, but not with an entire town of people locked inside. This didn't happen. I think this is one of the reasons that like there were there were people in the press like legitimately saying that this is an insult to the English, (laughs) because this is the kind of thing that the Nazis did in France. This is not the kind of thing that the British did in the Carolinas. Again, not saying that there weren't horrible things done. This guy Tavington, uh, historically, I, I mean, he had the, like some nickname like the butcher of such and such. He he probably did some terrible, terrible things, but not this specific terrible thing. And it's horrifying. I mean, you're seeing these people breaking down, sobbing, trying to break out of this church. And it's hopeless and it, absolutely devastating to watch. And you're not expecting it because nothing like this happened in the Revolutionary War. So it feels like kind of a kind again, kind of like cheating, kind of taking a shortcut to making us really, really hate those evil Brits and really feel bad for those blameless revolutionaries. And it's it just feels cheap. But yeah, now anyway, Anne and her whole family are dead. 
Yeah. So when the the men coming back and trying to find their families uh, discover this tragedy, Gabriel and several other soldiers race to attack Tavington's encampment nearby. In the ensuing battle, Gabriel shoots Tavington, but Tavington mortally wounds Gabriel before fleeing. Uh, Benjamin arrives soon thereafter, only to have another one of his sons die in his arms. Yeah, and it's again, it's an interesting scene. I, I, I wanted to make some kind of commentary or connection about the fact that, you know, Anne had this rousing speech in the church. And then, you know, a, sh- a little while later in the movie, that's the very church where she and her whole family are horribly killed. But like, the, again, the movie doesn't really lean on this or, or make any kind of commentary on it. It just kind of sits there that, you know, she has this lovely speech and gets all the men, even the reverend, excited to enlist. And then they all die there. Not the reverend, because the reverend is part of the militia now, but the reverend, uh, Reverend Constable Odo does die in this same scene. And it's it's, again, much like the scene where Benjamin takes his younger sons out and butchers everybody in the woods. It's really excitingly shot. Mm-hmm. Um, the choreography is so, I mean, I hate to say it, it's it's cool. There's this, you know, horrible moment where uh, I think it's Reverend Oliver, I think is actually the character's name. Reverend Oliver gets shot and is going down. And as he falls, he loses the grip on his musket and Gabriel grabs it midair and uses it to shoot somebody. And it's just I mean, it's obviously very over the top and cinematic, but it it really gets you. Yeah. And then. But yeah, in the end, of course, Benjamin races after them as well, only to come too too late. And he finds just the remains of a battle, an escaped Tavington and another dead son. And again, it's kind of interesting and they don't. And maybe they're just being subtle by not being heavy handed with it, but. So Gabriel shoots Tavington and you think he's killed him. Um, but I think he just the bullet just sort of grazes his side. He's fine ultimately, but he goes down. And if Gabriel had stopped, then Gabriel probably would have been fine. But he actually unsheathes a knife and goes toward Tavington and raises it to presumably make sure he's dead or possibly mutilate him or just gratuitously stab him because of course he's consumed with rage and vengeance over his his bride's murder if he hadn't done that if he hadn't had to go a little bit too far and Mm. go after him with a knife tavington wouldn't have been able to whip around and impale him so if that that desire for vengeance personal vengeance hadn't driven him forward with a knife gabriel probably would have lived if he had adhered to his own lofty ideals about fighting for liberty and freedom and not making it like a personal quest for vengeance, he probably wouldn't have been killed. That's interesting. And that's probably more thought and insight put into it than the actual film. creatures. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Like it has a lot of moments like that that are, that are really interesting and, and fraught, but they don't that's really, true. they I don't mean, really get commented on, which I mean is okay. I mean, I wouldn't think more of the movie if everyone stopped and said, well, gosh, if Gabriel hadn't betrayed his own ideals by going in to mutilate Tavington, maybe he'd still be alive. And that's fine. I don't want them to do that. But it's just they kind of scatter these throughout, but don't really ultimately kind of thread the needle. So, yeah, that's right. I mean, there definitely is a feeling that someone was being thoughtful about a lot of this stuff and then 
a lot of it was just kind of Hollywooded away. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's it's like there's a good movie in there somewhere. If like Michelangelo could have come and chipped away everything that wasn't a good movie, you would have had a good movie. But anyway, please continue with the with the summary. I'll stop interrupting. That's fine. That's that's what that's how the podcast works is (laughs) is one of us reads another one interrupts. (laughs) Benjamin mourns and wavers in his commitment to continue fighting, but is resolved when reminded of his son's dedication and to the cause by finding an American flag that Gabriel has been repairing throughout the movie. Martin's militia, along with the larger Continental Army Regiment, confronts Cornwallis's regiment in a decisive battle at the Battle of Cowpens. The British appear to have the upper hand until Benjamin rallies the troops forward and against their lines, Tavington rushes and attacks them. So Tavington sees that uh, that Benjamin is is running this show. And so he dives in without any orders from Cornwallis too. Yeah. I think specifically defying Cornwallis's orders, uh, Tavington raises his sword aloft and gets his cavalry buddies uh, to charge into the field. And Cornwallis is basically like, Oh, come on. <laughs> but he's got to, he's got to go after Benjamin. I mean, it's become very personal. Like, the, like earlier when Benjamin had, had, had tricked Cornwallis into releasing the militia captives, he and uh, Tavington had gotten into a little bit of a spat where uh, Tavington taunts him over how much he enjoyed killing little Thomas, uh, who he even refers to. I wrote it down somewhere. That stupid little boy, which, <laughs> which which actually did cement Tavington as my favorite character because that's just golden. Uh, but at, after that, you know, Mel just gives him a Mel Gibson look and goes, before this war is over, I will kill you. And, uh, so, you know, now, OK, now we know it's going to come down to a duel between these two idiots at some point. And indeed it does. Um, and this is this is kind of fun. I feel like this last little con- little confrontation between Tavington and Benjamin is is very Bravehearty in that uh, you've got Mel Gibson just suffering blow after blow and getting like spun around by the f- centrifugal force of Tavington's uh, sword blows. And, you know, he's got his uh, his tomahawk, which. Presumably, he must have looted from one of the Cherokees he dismembered at Fort Wilderness. Like, I don't know where else he would have gotten it. So that's probably a whole nother like symbolically weird thing where he's like assuming the mantle of indigeneity and like becoming a real American or some something I would have written a really bad paper about in grad school. Um, but so he's getting like you think he's basically getting like hacked to death mm-hmm. and he's getting like spun around and it's and not quite slow mo, but it's maybe a little slow mo. It's yeah. But anyway, you, th- you think Benjamin's done for. And this is where it's not like Braveheart because Benjamin is not done for. No, not at all. Uh. <laughs> he does let Tavington get in one last good villainous speech, though, which I enjoy. Oh, yeah. What was that about? Oh, he yeah, there's just, it's just some some dumb villain thing where he's like. Well, you see then that. You said you were going to kill me. Before the war was over, but it seems you are not the better man or I mean, it's not a good villain speech. The dude who I can't remember the actor's name, but the guy who plays Tavington delivers it like with like sneering delightfulness. Like it's it's great, but it's it's not particularly memorable in and of itself. It just kind of does the classic supervillain thing of taking an unnecessary minute or so to monologue to his uh, about to be decisively destroyed opponent. But then... Yeah, so Benjamin slumps to his knees and Tavington prepares to deliver the coup de grace. 
At the last second, Benjamin dodges the attack and impales Tavington in the heart with, uh, with I think, like a... I think it's a bayonet. Bayonet, yeah. And, yep, that's the end of Tavington. Um, R.I.P., best character. Yeah, he Loves stabs him. him in the heart and then, like, growls something at him and stabs him in the neck as well. Oh, he says, uh, well, it's because Tavington had said, we see you are not the better man. And he says, my sons were better men than I. Oh, and then yeah, he stabs that's him. that's right. Yeah. That's right. He has finally avenged his children's deaths. And the battle is a victory for the Continental Army. And Cornwallis sounds the retreat. Oh, oh, I do have to mention the part that almost redeemed the movie for me. Oh, yeah. So we, we've mentioned it several times. Like, OK, so, you know, after Gabriel's death, Benjamin's demoralized and he doesn't want to keep fighting. And so the militia and the rest of like the regular army are marching off to battle without him. But then somebody inspires him to do something and he's like, okay, this is what Gabriel would have wanted, blah, blah, blah. So he, you know, he grabs an American flag and he's he's galloping forward with the banner flowing behind him and everybody starts cheering. This is where uh, one of the black actors lines is just a huzzah. But uh, so he rejoins them and everything's going great. And then the Battle of Cowpens is um, incredibly brutal. I mean, there's all this, you know, they, they start off firing guns at each other and there's and there's cannons and things but it, you know of course devolves just into hand-to-hand fighting because muskets are useless so there's all these dudes just whacking at each other with swords and bayonets and hitting each other with their muskets and things and when benjamin notices tavington galloping toward him he actually like for whatever reason basically abandons his weapon um and he grabs the american flag and starts running toward tavington with the flag like a like a javelin. No, um, what's a, a, lance. Ja- a lance, like a jouster's lance. So he's on foot. Tavington's on a horse with a sword and he's running at Tavington with his American flag lance. Like the flagpole's got a little pointy bit at the end. Yeah, that was that was Chekhov's pointy end. It was, of the flag. It was yeah, it was che- Chekhov's flagpole. And as he's closing the distance between them, I'm like, if this movie ends with Mel Gibson spearing this guy in the face with the American flag, I will forgive it because that's so ridiculous that I can't be mad at it. But instead, he actually just stabs the horse in the chest to dismount Tavington and then continues the fight. And so instead of something cool, something terrible happened to a horse. And I didn't like that at all. So, yeah, that that made him a villain. Yeah. So <laughs> the horse did nothing wrong. The horse did not deserve that. Um, but yeah. So anyway, he's finally taking care of Tavington. I super thought Benjamin was going to die. I I thought I had it all figured out. I thought he was going to, you know, die in glorious battle and his son would carry on his legacy. But it was just the opposite, which I mean, I guess they get some points for surprising me. But yeah, Benjamin actually gets a fairly happy ending for someone whose two sons died horribly. Yeah, the the movie after the battle kind of races to the conclusion. Um, Cornwallis is besieged at Yorktown, Yorktown, Virginia, where he surrenders to a surrounding Continental Army and the long-awaited French naval force. And they look so cool. And we could have had them so much earlier in the movie if this had been a better movie. And they are in boats and they're firing cannons from boats and it looks awesome. <laughs> but we get like 30 seconds of that. Yeah, it's it's a bummer. Uh, but the French do arrive and and save the day by by not letting the British retreat with their navy. And the uh, and Benjamin gets to, you know, after this big win, gets to return to his family and you see them um, 
returning home to wherever their homestead originally was with Charlotte, who is now carrying their new baby. See, I don't know if I buy that. Like, you, you put this in the summary because you said it was in Wikipedia, but I don't remember the new baby in the slightest. Like, I mean, again, I might have been, like, looking at my phone or something or not paying attention, but I don't remember the baby. Like, they didn't get married or anything. Is it? Yeah. In, they did? I don't know. I really don't, I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, maybe. <sighs> maybe Wikipedia is just wrong, which is very possible. <laughs> but we'll have to go back and check it. But yeah, I mean, if nothing else, it's obviously at minimum heavily implied that he's going to marry Charlotte and she, she's the kid's new mommy, new, new aunt mommy. Ugh. And, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, you cu- they come back to his tobacco farm and you see the 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 frame of a house going up and all of his militia buddies are building him a new house, just like when the hurricane took Ned Flanders house and everyone in Springfield came together to uh, to rebuild it. And there's even this great moment where the the one the one black member of the militia, again, whose whose name I don't remember because I don't remember if it ever even got said, is like, well, Gabriel said that we were going to make a start something new if we win the war or something. So we thought we'd start with your home. <sighs> so I guess yeah. they're, they're honoring their good, good dead buddy Gabriel by rebuilding his dad's house. And I, I don't know, I'm not trying to be flippant, but if I was like a newly freedman soldier in South Carolina, I don't think I'd stick around. I think I would have tried to head oh. North. It's not implied that this guy has like a family or anything. Maybe he does. Obviously, they don't get into it. But like if he's just like a single dude who's who's free now and can go anywhere. Bye. I, yeah, I don't think I don't think that, that the greater Charlestown area is where I would have personally chose chosen to hang out. Um, but again, there's literally no context or history to this guy. So maybe he has a great reason for sticking around in South Carolina and building this other guy's house for free. Um, but yeah, so actually everything's. Yeah, more or less was, fine for Benjamin. Things aren't t- turn out well for him, aside from the dead kids and whatever. Um, he has five more now, six more. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. Yep. That's so the that, movie. That's, that's the all that three is, hours of it. That is the Patriot. Man, we've uh, we've taken a little bit of time covering it all, but I think it was worth it. And I also think that I probably repeated myself a lot, and there's probably plenty of me repeating myself. You can edit out later, so you can you can you can get it down to a nice. Nice brisk tight, tight 15. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, so let's let's rate this movie. Yeah, how do you guys do this again? I mean, I've listened to literally every episode, but please uh, refresh me. Okay, so we have uh some major categories that we rate the movie on. That would be acting, writing, cinematography, and overall. Overall being how those three elements work together hmm. for an overall product. And then we give the movie a chance for some bonus points with uh costumes and set. Boldness, legacy being uh, legacy being how it influences later movies or how it could influence later movies Mm -hmm. where if we're in the year 2000, it's a little bit difficult to call how that will happen. But well, it's been 20 years, yo. Oh, I guess so. The year 2000 was 20 years ago because we're old now. Uh, So so tell me how many how many what's what's max? Is it like one through 10 here? So the major categories are one through 10 and then the bonus categories are one through five. Okay, well, well, actually, we established uh, in a previous episode that we, we do allow for zeros. Definitely. 
and also negatives if something is completely if something's horrible. like like really bad like not just aesthetically but morally it can go into the negatives yeah. okay. so far only trader horn has crossed that line <laughs> which sounds like it richly earned all of its negative scores all right let's do this okay so acting how good was the acting in this movie on a scale from one to ten from one to ten well i think the acting was probably its greatest strength um mm-hmm. it was well cast um and, you know, I, I yell a lot in my private life. Uh, as you well know, I yell a lot about Mel Gibson. I don't like him. I think he's a bad man and shockingly overrated as an actor. But it's not so much that he's a bad actor. It's that he seems to just always play the same character, especially mm-hmm. probably during this period. You know, kind of the right. probably the 10 years after Braveheart. I think he was just playing his version of William Wallace over and over and over again. So he's he's fine. He's not bad. Um, I think a lot of the other actors are better. Uh, I I like the guy who played Cornwallis uh, as sort of a stuffy old guy, even though, thank you, I think Cornwallis was only in his early 40s at this time. So it's kind of a, another little minor historical slander that he's like a, you know, a boring, stuffy old guy. Um, like I said, Jolie Richardson was actually very good, even though she had very little to do. The dudes in the militia are pretty great. Um, you know, my guy Odo is probably the best um, as Reverend Oliver. So I'm going to give it a seven. I thought the acting was pretty good. Okay. Seven. Um, I think I'm going to match your seven for the same reasons that there's nothing objectionable about the acting. No. And the dude uh, who played Tavington was just such an, such a delight. I mean, he must've just had like a little dark night of the soul looking at his dialogue and looking at the over the top, evil of his character and saying, you know what? I'm going to own it. And he did. And he's, he's just, he's just a delight. I could have just watched another 45 minutes of him. Just the pr- adventures like, of yeah, Colonel Tavington. Yeah, just, him, just strangling kittens and pushing old ladies in front of carriages. And <laughs> just, just the worst person. Um, but he, he, he carries it off. So good for him. All right. So how was the writing? inconsistent jason i would say it's inconsistent it verges from the really pretty good Mm -hmm. to the mel gibson galloping across the battlefield with an american flag um and just from mel gibson galloping across to mel gibson potentially spearing somebody with the american flag if he'd actually speared tavington with it like a like a medieval knight with a lance it would be a 10 for me but I think one of the thing, one of the first things I wrote down was like, was the dialogue lifted directly from a textbook um, talking about like the Continental Congress and the this and the that and just very thudding didactic almost like we're going to teach you a little bit of a lesson about the American Revolution. Like when the assembly, they were like, South Carolina has many important exports. <laughs> the American Revolution is a land of contrasts. Um <laughs> So there's it's got some good moments. I'm not going to totally dismiss it. I think it needed to be pruned significantly. It's way bloated, way long. It's got that problem that most big historical epics, especially like in the 90s, early aughts had where it's just about twice as long as it should be. So there's there's too much of the writing for one thing. And it's just most of it's pretty obvious and heavy handed and and. So, I mean, the parts that are that are kind of good and inventive do really stand out. Uh, I'm going to say a four. It's a, a little four? bit a little bit below average. Not, 
you know, unbearable. It wasn't like Ed Wood level or anything, but it wasn't particularly sparkling. I guess I'm I guess I'm thinking in terms of both dialogue as well as just like the overall framing of the story and the pacing and outline and stuff. I actually think I'm going to go ahead and match you again. I'm going to match your four. I was really going to do five uh, thinking that it's like, hey, you know, they have some hits. They have some misses that averages out to a five. But then I thought about it. There are more misses than hits. Uh, And I think there's kind of just like a blah, low level through throughout it. So you have some pretty generic. Okay, we're plotting along writing and then we have some highlights like, oh, that could actually be kind of interesting. And then it's undercut usually like a couple of minutes later. Yeah, yeah. It really whiplashes back and forth between relatively nuanced and complicated scenes um, and or concepts or dialogue um, to just very obvious, boring, mm-hmm. showy, very cinematic, very Hollywood type mm-hmm. of. I see. I wish Laura was here because she has a better vocabulary for this sort of thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm a little below average. I'll stick to that. Yeah. Cinematography. I mean, it's a very pretty movie in some ways. Uh, this is probably where it's going to get the highest. I, I guess I said it was about acting, but the <laughs> I don't have any vocabulary for talking about film. I have no business doing this. But the <laughs> the far away scenes where you get the landscape or the cityscape are really very pretty. They really mm-hmm. look like. Like if you saw a watercolor rendering of a pastoral scene or an or a city scene from that era, it really looks like they were directly inspired by that. And I think they did consult with like the Smithsonian for right. um, for the aesthetic stuff. So um, they're very they've got like kind of this this earth tone color palette. Very, um, I think, very plausible, uh, non anachronistic, I guess, uh, which is very, again, very good looking. The sets and costumes are lovely. Uh, I am not an expert in 18th century dress or comportment or anything like that. Although I, so I can't really comment too in too much detail. Although I'm pretty sure sexy Aunt Charlotte's hair is very wrong, and that's going to continue to bother me. Right. Yeah, it did not look right. Um, but it, most of it looks cool. And then, like I said, there's a couple of those those battle scenes and fight scenes that are just very engagingly shot. Um, that's true. The fight scenes look cool as hell. And they have a sweet swamp hideout at one point. Um, oh, yeah. I think it's supposed to be like an abandoned Spanish mission and it's like ruined and it's in the middle of the swamp. And it, frankly, it looks like a place I would like to go to fight orcs in a D&D campaign. It's just got this neat look to it. So, oh, that's it's good stuff. I think um, I want more French battleships. And I think those were all CGI, too. I'm, I, they probably were. And it wasn't it wasn't bad CGI if it was. I think that there was probably some degree of what would you call it? Like like matte paintings or something, maybe. I mean, this would be something interesting yeah. to look up, because if there weren't, then the CGI looked a little bit painterly, which is probably a good thing. Twenty years ago, they weren't taxing it too much. They were kind right. of working within its limitations. So I think. This would be I should have looked this up, actually. It'd be interesting to know if the like historic looking backdrops like old Charlestown or whatever, how much of that was practical effects? Was any of it like an actual old timey matte painting? Was it all CGI? I think the ships were CGI, whatever. But 
it works together pretty well. And it does give a little bit of an illustration feel, like a little bit of a watercolor feel. So it was pretty good. I would say an eight. An eight? How'd you feel about the slow-mo? Dumb. I think it's always usually pretty dumb. Oh, and I don't know if this is a real specific category, but during the battle of, I think it was during the battle of Cowpens, there's some real just like, strangely cheerful John Williams music that feels just <laughs> incredibly right. dis- discord dissonant, I guess. Um, and I don't know if they were trying to make some kind of point contrasting this like very upbeat military tattoo with this ghastly hand to hand combat, close quarters, fighting, horrifying bloodshed. It's one of those things where I can't quite tell if they're trying to make a point or if it just didn't work together well, but I think they were trying to make it heroic. A little, a little bit tootly for that. I thought. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I digress. What's the? What was that? Uh, so you gave it a, an eight in cinematography. I'm going to go ahead and man, I keep going back and forth on this. I think I'm going to go ahead and give it a six. Actually, hmm. um, I felt like it was definitely the battle scenes were cool. Um, the a lot of the shots i don't know there was the weird bullet time slow-mo bits that <laughs> i forgot about that like the like bullet cam basically yeah oh yeah because there's this beautiful moment where uh when martin and tavington are dueling at the end basically and he's he's dismounted him from his horse by impaling the poor horse and uh He's going to take a shot at him with his, what would it be like a little, little handgun of some sort of little little flint, flint lock pistol or something. And he has the last little, little ball that he melted down from his son's toy soldiers. And just like, like you see him just putting it in the gun and aiming it. And it's like little, little on the nose, little heavy handed there taking his, his dead son's toy soldiers and he's shooting them at the bad guy. This is how he kind of disables tavington and then they fight more and whatever but it's a a great dumb moment (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah so that's that's my six it's definitely nothing innovative it's it's i think it's i think it does it does what it does relatively well um and the battle scenes are pretty cool but yeah it's nothing nothing like it's going to change the state of the art or anything like that that's okay it's fine it's just big goofy historic epic it doesn't have to break new ground and overall how well does the acting writing and cinematography come together to make a an overall product five five perfectly average extremely average yes the stuff that made me mad made me pretty mad the stuff that was surprisingly complex or nuanced or i'm sorry i keep reusing the same words over and over again but the things that I thought worked worked better than I would have guessed based on my assumptions about the movie before watching it. And the stuff that was dumb was actually even dumber than I thought it would be. So I think it just kind of averages out. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give it a four. Ooh, you dislike it more than I do. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I thought there were bits of it that were fine. Like, like you, like you said, <laughs> um, there, I think the points that just kind of made me say, huh, were a little bit more, they're sticking out in my head more. Yeah. The the problems are sticking in my head more than the aha. <laughs> yeah, sort of I mean, moments. like 20 years later, it is, it's something to look back at how they're treating the black characters 
where they 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 were enlightened enough to know that they couldn't just not address slavery, but they were not brave enough to really put any pressure on it in a way that would have reflected poorly on the hero. Mm-hmm. Um, what a much more interesting film this would have been if it had been from the perspective of the guy who was sold into soldierhood by his owner or what a much more interesting film it would have been from Abigail's perspective, the domestic servant who let all these rich white people come stay at the Gullah uh, settlement with her. Like, I'd like to know their stories more than than Mel Gibson's. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the movie was trying to do what it was trying to do. And I don't think that the people who did it were probably really seriously considering the very uncomfortable truth of American history, which is that I'm going to get controversial here. There actually weren't good guys in the American Revolution. Um, I mean, I have a lot of feelings about this. Like I said, when I was uh, the the brief period during which I was flailing around in graduate school, pretending I was going to get a Ph.D. in American literature. This is exactly the kind of thing that I would get excited about and want to write about was this kind of foundational nation building um national origin myth stuff that i think is so juicy and interesting and has so many opportunities to get interestingly complicated and what i'm kind of mad about is that they kept almost doing that and then backing off you know they acknowledge benjamin's trauma but then when he gets to win the war everything just seems kind of fine and They acknowledge the existence of slavery. But, oh, here's here's the thing I was really getting wound up about last night was that. So there's this whole dynamic with one of the minor super racist militia guys and the enslaved militia guy. And I really wish I looked up that character's names. That feels like a bad thing to call him. But he keeps being racist. He keeps being gross and he keeps just treating him like an outsider. Like you shouldn't be here. Like it sucks that like what they're going to, they're going to free them. And then they're even going to pay them for their military service. And, you know, meanwhile, the, the black militia man just sort of takes it and takes it and takes it and doesn't say anything back. And he's not like deferential or cringing or anything. He's very dignified character, but he just basically ignores this like mouthy, gross white guy Mm -hmm. until I think it's when they capture Cornwallis's journals or something. And there's some pretty intense fighting and the black guy saves the most racist guy. And from that point, then everything's whatever they return to this pair of characters. It's all about how the super racist white guy is now, you know, gradually becoming enlightened. And at the end, he, he you know, uh, I think right before the Battle of Cowpens, he he's turns to him. He's like, it's an honor to fight beside you. And I mean, the black guy's kind of like, yeah, OK, <laughs> and does his thing. And it really OK. I hope you can edit this to make me sound more coherent and smart, but I think what it's what's getting to me is it really felt like this thing that white people that we often do where we we just kind of want racism to be a little bit edifying for black people that isn't it sort of ennobling to have this opportunity to be the better person if that makes sense where I see what you're saying um, you're being bullied and and used and put in harm's way by these people who don't even think you deserve a basic level of freedom and protection. But then if you sacrifice even more, his eyes will be opened and he'll see what a good guy you are and how you and people like you deserve rights, too. And it's like. 
it it feels like people who who think that like well you know racism is bad but you know the blues are so great isn't it great that we got the blues or something and i feel like i should have tried to like write this out first because i i do have a point i want to make and i feel like i'm flailing around with it but it's got this like sense that we're kind of trying to make ourselves feel better by pointing toward like either the virtue or the accomplishments um, of either an individual black person or black people in general, despite the ongoing horrors of anti-black racism, despite chattel slavery and despite being conscripted into a war with no say in the matter, you get to be the better person. So ultimately, wasn't this kind of good for you in a way? And I really don't like that. I really don't like how this felt like. So we've got this 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 guy who's black and he has been enslaved and now he's in the militia and he's in as much peril as anybody. But golly, he got to be a real learning experience for that super racist militia guy. In the super racist militia guy, how much of a learning opportunity was that for him? Because he's honored to fight next to this guy. But this guy also saved his life like he would be dead. And so that's how much it yeah, takes. Exactly. So you have to save my life at the extreme risk of your own extreme personal risk to you. You have to save my life for me to like have this little epiphany that you might also be a person. And I don't care for that. And I could yell about that at great length and probably shouldn't. So moving on. <laughs> moving on. Well, before we move on, I, I was also thinking about that, um, you know, earlier today and thinking about how it really is an interesting reflection of how white people saw racism in America at at the year 2000 as well. Uh-huh. It's like, well, you know. There's this even in the revolutionary time where this is kind of ongoing aura of of racism going on. There's always there's always that one person who is really, really racist. And that's the person that we that we really dislike, which kind of gives carte blanche to all the other racists that are around them that, uh, you know. And and now we're in 2020 and and. Yeah, we're, we've we're got fi- pe- we're finding out that it's not just that one really, really racist <laughs> yeah, guy. Exactly. It's not just the loudest and most obvious like Ku Klux Klan member who's a problem. We're all a problem. And again, I, I could yell about this at great length, um, not terribly coherently. Like I said, I, I dropped out of grad school. So my my level of coherence and uh, <laughs> and citations is certainly not what it should be. But yeah, there's just like something very, very white and very Y2K about it. Um, we're getting to the point where we know we can't ignore it. But God help us if we're going to acknowledge we were wrong about anything. You know, maybe one individual person was too racist, but he got fixed by yeah, having his life that saved one, by that a one black last guy. racist guy got fixed. In yeah. The Revolutionary yeah. And then everything's War. fine. Yeah. It was very, very reflective of the way I was taught about race relations in high school and whatnot. So, yeah, it felt it felt familiar. And I don't. I don't know that it would be as bad in a movie to date, but I also don't watch a lot of movies. So maybe things are just as terrible as they always have been. Sorry. Sorry. What was the next, uh, next the category? Next, oh, next up we have bonus rounds. And these are, these are the one through five, right? Yeah. These are one through five or zero. If you don't feel like it deserves any bonus points. Sweet. Let's do it. And the first one is costumes and set. Pretty solid. Pretty mad about Charlotte's hair. I have two bonus points. Two bonus points? Yeah. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give them 
three. I I liked the. Uh, I think the thing is that I just like periwigs. Periwigs are rad and underrated. I know they need they need to come back. And it's funny too how only the bad guys ever wear them. But Tavington yeah. doesn't, which is interesting. Tavington doesn't wear a periwig. I don't think he's just too rough and tumble. Yeah, and handsome, devastatingly handsome. <laughs> you mm-hmm. can't hide that handsomeness under. You can't hide that handsomeness. No. <laughs> All right. The next section is boldness. How? What kind of risks does this movie take? And do zero, they pay off? Uh, zero of risk. You think zero? This movie of risk? takes zero risks. There's the pacifist parts at the beginning, I guess. The PTSD. It brings it up, but it doesn't do anything with it. It's a very have its cake and eat it too thing where like mm. we're going to acknowledge the bad thing, but then we also just want to get back to having like a cool patriotic movie. So, I mean, I, I think it handles some things interestingly, but not quite. It doesn't push on them enough for me to think it like I'm not going to take away points, I guess, but right. I don't I don't know that it really went far enough. I think it feels like in a lot of ways, just a very conventional big splashy historical epic that's you know they released it on the fourth of july y2k like (laughs) it's doing what it's supposed to do and that's not bold all right so zero from you i am i am going to give it a point just one for at least bringing up the horrors i guess that's fair that's fair i don't i don't think you're wrong okay let's see the next step that we're going to be looking at is legacy. How do you feel this movie is going to impact movies that follow? Here again is a point where I bet you wish Laura was here because she actually watches movies and I am actually not much of a cinema person. So I, I don't feel like I can speak very knowledgeably about like what big historic epics have become in the last 20 years. Uh, they're not a type of movie I would be inclined to go see most of the time. I'm kind of a fragile flower and I get upset very easily. And this type of movie usually has, you know, atrocities and I don't like those. So um, I don't know. It would it would be interesting to contrast this to other big historic epics that kind of came out around the same time, like Gladiator. I actually kind of assumed this would be like Gladiator, but it with tricorn hats and hairy wigs. <laughs> and it wasn't. Um, I'll give it that. And contrast those to like the historic type films that came out like five years later. Like I think what would probably be the most interesting place to look at that would be sort of in the immediate 9-11 era, uh, which is kind of me vamping because I don't know. Um, I don't think it probably had a huge impact one way or the other. It didn't innovate as far as I can tell. It didn't do anything shocking or. I don't think it innovated. And I feel like it almost went backwards, if anything, in terms of keeping things historically accurate and things like that. Whereas I do feel like there is an attempt at historical accuracy more these days. Someone in one of the, you know, we, we didn't do a ton of research, but I know we, we read some articles and reviews and stuff, both from the time and a little bit later, uh, just kind of get a sense, especially for the historical inaccuracies. And, uh, um, I do feel like this movie may have set back Anglo-American relations by about 15 years. Um, like I would be genuinely embarrassed to watch this movie in the same room with an English person. Um, I feel like it does not reflect well on us as a country that we have to turn our military opponent into something worse than a Disney villain. Like if you can't do a war movie that acknowledges the humanity of the other side to some extent, like unless we're talking about like the actual Nazis or something, I'm not very sympathetic to that. You can make the Nazis like 
unrepentant monsters. And I'm not because they were because they were Um, because I'm I'm not going to be too mad about that. But the idea that we have to tell an American Revolution story by making the British these absolute over the top, implausibly evil bad guys just seems very lazy. Like if you can't make me root for the protagonist Mm -hmm. just because I want to root for the protagonist, but because his his opponent is pure evil. That's lazy. So I'm not going to give it any extra points for that. I think it was just a just a very average, splashy history movie. I mean, it's very it's very history channel. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. I'm I'm going to give it zero points as well. It just it didn't strike me as anything that's going to like particularly impact movies after it. Uh, Next category is longevity. How well do you think this thing is going to hold up over time or how well has it hold up over time? Because it has been 20 years, as you pointed out. Feels about the same. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to give it anything extra for that. I'll give it a zero Um, because I don't again, it's it's watchable. It's competently made. It's it's fine, but Mm -hmm. it's. The, it, the race stuff has aged the worst, the I think. Stuff is not it's that's aged very badly. Well. Like that that actually has me contemplating maybe a negative one because again, it feels like they really should have known better, and they obviously did, because of the whole, well, we're not slaves. We're paid to work on Benjamin's farm thing is such an awkward acknowledgement of yeah. the problem. Acknowledgement and erasure. Yeah, yeah. It's like acknowledgement followed immediately by erasure. Um so I'm actually you know what? Let's make that a negative one, because I do think that we're we we have obviously not become great about this. Uh, I think that it sounds like in the last few years, Hollywood has gotten a little bit better about allowing there to be films made by people who aren't white dudes. And that Mm -hmm. might help in the long run. But to me, to me, it's embarrassing, I guess, that like you knew you knew you needed to do better than this. And like, I think one of the one of the letters we read was was written by like a, a guy who works for the Smithsonian. He's a historic consultant. Um, it's a Patriot Aim, showing the paradox of slavery by Rex Ellis, July 17th, 2000. I guess he was the uh, chair of the Division of Cultural History at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, uh, specializing in slavery and early American history. But it's it's kind of like they brought. So he he writes about, well, you know, I recommended that they did have this scene in the in the Gullah settlement and stuff and that they did acknowledge this and that. But and I don't want to put the blame in this on any way on this guy, but. It almost like there almost would have been like a plausible deniability if they had just ignored it, but since they didn't, it just shows how much more they should have done. Like you you can't just you just kind of can't have a decent movie about the American Revolution that just has like a white guy tobacco farmer is the hero you can't just just do that like <laughs> and they clearly wanted to knew they couldn't but kind of tried to sneak it in anyway it's yeah it it kind of in terms of longevity it's always going to be marked by this really weird really specific year 2000 attitudes amongst wise people about racism and yeah. race self self congratulatory i think would be yes. the, i think there was a real all through the 90s when you and i were teenagers i think there was this real sense of hey it's the 90s we're pro- we have progressed we are we are good now you know uh hey i mean like being gay isn't even in the dsmv anymore or whatever and it's like we really thought we had it figured out by Y2K. And I mean, I'm, I'm implicating myself in this. I was 
extremely dumb about this kind of thing back then and really thought things were were better in a material way for non-white people than they really were. And I just feel like all of that self-congratulatory white person energy was just like funneled into this production in a way that really marks it as of its time. Yeah, it makes it incredibly awkward. So I feel like we noticed it watching it in 2020. I think in 2030, people (laughs) are going to notice it. Hopefully more. Yeah, Yeah, I think I think there were good intentions at play. But if if (laughs) if the last 20 years have taught me nothing, it's that having like vaguely benevolent intentions is actually worth almost nothing. So. All right. So that's a negative one from you. I'm also going to give it a negative one. You have me very strongly convinced (laughs) about how it's it has a negative impact in terms of longevity. (laughs) It doesn't just fail to stand up over time. It kind of draws its time to itself. Yeah, it it draws attention to its weakest points. And our last category for bonus points uh, might do a little bit better here. Technical. So... That's stuff like effects and sound. Oh, yeah, I think that did pretty well. Um, Oh, three, I guess. Three. Yeah, those battle scenes were pretty rad. Like I said, I started this with a very cynical, prepared to really hate this movie. Um, But I've got to admit, some of those those fighting scenes really drew me in. And I think that was largely how they were filmed, how they were choreographed and just how they were framed. they were much more effective on me. <laughs> uh, I was actively hostile toward the movie and they still drew me in. So I've got to give them some credit for that. I'm going to give it three points as well, because, you know, I liked I liked the boats, which I, you know, for CGI. And I feel like there were some other bits that were uh, either dressed up by CGI or they just did some pretty cool effects. And the battle scenes were I appreciated that they weren't incredibly long. Yes, I was standing uh, by true. for like Braveheart levels of like, please, will this ever end? Yes, that is a good point. I actually thought that, too, is that the battle scenes were mercifully appropriate in length. And considering that this is a big, bloated three hour movie, that's actually impressive. I was about a war. Yeah, I was bracing myself for interminable battle scenes, which I don't like. I'm like I said, I'm very fragile, um, but they were they were brutal, but they weren't interminable. So, Yeah. Okay, and so the Patriot has a total score, if I've tallied up everything correctly, of 55, which puts it um, above all of our famously bad ones. (laughs) Um, And just, I think the next one below, the next one above it is Alibi at 61. Wow. So, um, and that seems appropriate. It's not like, Amongst the worst, but I'm not going to put it in and amongst best picture nominees and winners. And just out of curiosity, did we ever look up and see what it was nominated for? I think we 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 did check that because I don't think it was even nominated for best picture. No, it was not. Um, Double check that because I didn't want to um, to step on that, you know, because we have to do that episode. And if it were in 2000, then, we, you know, 10 years from now. The, uh, Until you guys start doing two episodes a week, which I need you to do. So <laughs> what else are you doing with your time where there's a pandemic? Come on. Let's see. It did get nominated for Best Cinematography. That's fair. Best Music Original Score. Nah, I mean, it was John Williams. It was pretty good. I didn't think it was anywhere near the top percentile of John Williams scores right. by any it's, stretch. I, but can't it's fine. Re- I can't remember any t- 
songs. So no, no it, was, it was it was fine. Um, best sound. Sure. <laughs> um, let's see, and that's all the Academy Awards that they it did. Was. No one got no one got nominated for any acting. Mm-mm. Whoa, I'm kind of surprised by that. No, nope. I would have thought they would have had at least like a best supporting actor somewhere in there. But you know, I guess everybody except Mel Gibson had such like relatively little screen time. They kind of rotate through the supporting cast. So maybe no one had enough screen time to really make an impression. But just checking on 2000, who are they up against? That might have a big impact. That's a point. Gladiator. Oh, that came out the same year. Yes. Interesting. If I were smart and knew more about cinema, I would probably have a lot to say about comparing and contrasting these two films specifically, actually. Chocolat. I have seen that, and that is a very different movie. <laughs> <laughs> Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Haven't seen it. I'm guessing the battle scenes are probably even better, though. Yes, that's what I'm, I've understood. Aaron Brockovich. Haven't seen it, but, you know, Julia Roberts is cute, so it's probably good. Is it Julia Roberts? Yeah. I know that much. I haven't seen it, but I know that much. Um, and Traffic. I saw that in the theater. Oh, that was one of the first like grown up movies I went to see like by my well, not by myself, but with my friend John and Colleen. And uh, oh, I was so pleased with myself for going and seeing like a real grown up movie about drugs. I was like 18. I was a little bit of a late <laughs> bloomer. <laughs> I don't think it was the first grown up movie that Colleen and John had seen at the theater, but it was for me and it made quite an impression. And uh, God, I wonder how that one holds up. I haven't seen it since. But boy, I thought it was brilliant at 18. So there's context there for you. But. Oh, that's what it was up against. And I guess the final question is, should it be nominated for a Notsker, a movie award, podcast movie award for movies? Uh, no, it should not. Okay, I, I would agree. I would agree. There's not, there is not enough good, a decent amount of bad. So I'm sorry, the Patriot. No, no secret sliding into the, uh, <laughs> into the 2000 era for you. <laughs> All right. And I think that's our show. Uh, thank you, everyone, to listening and uh, really appreciate you downloading us and giving us a shot. Uh, don't my, worry, Laura, we'll be back next time. So don't hold this one against the whole podcast. I liked this and I think you are. <laughs> you a like great me, though. You're, you're, you're biased. <laughs> I hope that you will come back on again sometime. Well, in like 40 years or whenever you guys get around to Braveheart, I'll be here to yell. Um <laughs> Absolutely. That's that is a deal right there. I have lots of opinions about Edward the first. So and if you guys are still doing this then, which I hope you are, you'll get to hear them all. So excellent. <laughs> OK. And uh, you can find us on Twitter at Comeback a Star. You can email us at Comeback a Star podcast at Gmail dot com. You can find us on Facebook. We do have a Facebook page, although there are very few people on it and we don't really post much or (laughs) at all. So come on over. So, yeah. So come on over. (laughs) Start the party. I'm uh, really, really warming it up there. Uh, And I believe that's all we have to say. Uh, Special thanks also to our fellow podcasts out there, ones that have been supporting us and and people who promoted us on on Twitter and everything like that. Thank you so much. Oh, and can I give a special shout out to um, my first and most beloved podcast, The Rex Factor? Uh Um, They rate all the kings and queens of England, of Scots, and right now they're doing the the consorts of the kings and queens of England. And... uh, they're brilliant and wonderful, and I've loved them for like the last eight or nine years. 
And yesterday, Jason and I did listen again to their uh, two episodes on King George III to try to get a little historic background, which we didn't uh, refer to at all in this lengthy <laughs> recording. Yeah, there's but... very little George III. In <laughs> yeah, the... I know. But I mean, I'd... actually, this whole thing just kind of made me want to rewatch The Madness of King George more than anything. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but check out the Rex Factor. They are a consistent delight. They've been mm-hmm. doing this for a very long time. Like the King George III episodes were from 2012 and they're still going strong and they've they have uh, inspired a whole like genre of podcast from Saga Thing and Totalis Rankium and Pontifax to a whole bunch of other ones that I can't even remember off the top of my head. But they're <laughs> they're they're the best and uh, everyone should listen they, to them. They, they <laughs> came up with the idea of taking historical things and rating them. Yes, it, it, they basically created the genre of a historical podcast where, you know, two people just talk through a thing and then, you know, rate it. And apparently that's how I like to learn about history. So, um if you, too, want to have a lot of opinions about Edward I of England, do check them out. Absolutely. All right. And with that, we're going to pull down the curtains, turn the projector off and sign off, everybody. Take care of yourselves. Goodbye. Farewell. Farewell.